Grab a Bible this morning and find the book of Philippians. Philippians chapter 2. Some of you may have read in the paper this week that one of our pastors uh, received an award. You are in the presence this morning of the distinguished Odessan in the area of religion. And his name's Corey Spear. And he just has one request of all of you. And that is during this year of his reign that you would kindly refer to him as your highness. Just one year till they, somebody will be new next year. We are proud of Corey, and we appreciate him, and he does a lot of stuff around here. And uh, we're not going to call you your highness, but... Philippians 2. There's some notes in the outline or in the... Uh, in the bulletin if you want to look along, follow along. Philippians 2. We're taking two weeks, this week and last week, to look at Philippians 2, 1 to 11. And last week we looked at the end of the passage, and this week we're going to look at the beginning of the passage. And there's a reason that we flipped those. We looked at 5 to 11 last week, we're going to look at 1 to 4 this week. And this is on your bulletin. There's two purposes in this passage. That's why we're, we're sort of taking two weeks to really look at it. Two purposes. The first purpose is emulation, or you could say imitation. So in the first four verses, the purpose is Paul saying, I want you to imitate Jesus. And then the last half, the purpose is adoration, to say, I want you to worship Jesus for who he is and for what he accomplished for you. And the reason that we flipped those and we're looking at the, the imitation after the worship is that Christianity at its heart is not about you and I trying to be more like Jesus. And there's a danger. The danger is that we would look at this passage, we would look at the verses we're going to look at this morning without considering the last half of the passage that sort of is intimately connected to it. And we would say, man, it sounds like being a Christian is just about trying really, really hard to be more and more like Jesus. And at its heart, that's not Christianity. Christianity is you need to acknowledge that you're nothing like Jesus. That he's completely different than you. That you're a sinner and he's sinless and that he died on the cross for your sins. And first you come to him in worship and in adoration. And as you do that, the spirit of God living in you begins to work in your life and begins to change you. We'll talk about this next week. And begins to make you into the kind of person who begins to look more and more and more like Jesus. You begin to imitate him more. Not in some attempt to earn your salvation, but in response to what God is doing in your life. Now, I told you this last week. Most Bible scholars think that Philippians 2, 5 to 11 is an early Christian hymn. And you say, okay, we talked about that last week. Why do I need to know about it this week? If we're not looking at those verses, we're looking at the first four. Here's why you need to understand it. Paul is using this hymn, this song of worship, to motivate the Philippians to be more like Jesus. Meaning, in Paul's mind, your worship, we just said this, ought to transform you into a new person. Paul would say to you and I, what you do when you gather together in this room with God's people, we come together every Sunday, same time, in the morning, same people, basically the same songs, and we sing them over and over and over again. What you do in this room ought to change you. 
It shouldn't just be something that happens in this room and then we're done and then we go eat lunch. Genuine worship, worship in spirit and in truth, hopefully what's happening in this room when we gather together, ought to be changing us, ought to be renewing our minds as we sing about Scripture and as we think about Scripture, ought to be changing us and convicting us in our hearts about sin in our lives and moving us to be more like Christ. So in Paul's mind, he's using this hymn to move them to action, to move them to worship. Now, here's the big idea of our passage, verse 1, 2, 3, and 4. Paul commanded the Philippians to complete his joy by finding unity in Christ. When you read this in the Greek, and my Greek is not fantastic at all, you read it in the Greek, verse 1, 2, 3, 4, is one sentence. In your translation, it gets broken up. There's commas, there's periods. It's all divided up. But in the Greek, it's one sentence, verse one to four. And in that one sentence, there is only one command, only one actual verb. Everything else describes this one verb. And the one verb is Paul saying to the church, complete my joy. How do you do that? And what he explains in the rest of this passage, verse 1, 2, 3, and 4 is, you will complete my joy if you find unity in Christ. We've titled this series Rejoice, and I've told you almost every week, rejoice means worshiping with joy. And I just want you to see, in this one passage, you have both of those ideas. You may not actually read the word rejoice this morning, but you see worship and you see joy. You see worship in this hymn that Paul is using to motivate them, and you see joy and Paul saying, if you will find your unity in Christ, you will complete my joy. Both of those things right here in this passage. Now, one last little note before we jump in and read the passage, okay? Unity is necessary for accomplishing the mission. Jesus gave us a mission to make disciples of all the nations. We cannot do that if we're not united as a church family. There's not a church on the planet that will ever do anything to push back the gates of hell and advance the gospel if they're not first unified in Jesus. You show me a church that's fighting, divided, bickering, factions, cliques, all of that nonsense, that's a church that is not doing anything for the kingdom. I guarantee it. We've got to be united for the sake of the mission. However... The foundation of our unity runs deeper than a shared mission. It's rooted in the gospel. What I'm telling you is it's not just a task that binds us together. It's a person that binds us together. And yes, we need to be united and unified if we're going to accomplish this mission. But a day is coming, you understand, where the mission will be done. When Jesus comes back and there will be no more sermons and disciple-making and evangelism and missions and missions offering, all that will be done. And God's people will still be united. Not because we share a task, but because we share in a person. Because we share in Christ. So with all that said, I want you to look at the text and we're going to read Philippians 2, 1 to 11. And then we'll pray and we'll talk about it. Scripture says this. So if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Do nothing from rivalry or conceit, 
but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. But he made himself nothing, taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Let's pray. Father, we come confessing our sin. We come acknowledging your holiness. We come thankful for who Jesus is. That he was in the form of God and that he humbled himself and he took the form of a servant. And then he humbled himself to death, even death on a cross. Father, and we believe that he has been super exalted, highly exalted to the throne of the universe. And Father, our prayer this morning is that you would send your spirit as we think about your word to convict us and to encourage us and to strengthen us. And Father, that this morning we would find our unity in Christ. And Father, we pray for those who are here who don't know Jesus. They've never experienced the kind of unity that we're talking about, the kind of joy or the kind of worship that we're talking about this morning. Father, and we pray today that you would open their heart to the truth. And we ask in Jesus' name, amen. This week I read a story about a small church in Wales, Great Britain. This has been quite a while back. Uh, This would have been back in the, you know, no social media, no internet, no TV news. Just the newspaper was how you got the news. And uh, this small church, they were without a pastor, And they had two groups in the church, and one group had their own idea of who they ought to get as their next pastor, and the other group had their own idea about who they ought to get as their pastor. And this sort of went on for a while back and forth. And uh, in the Monday paper, after an interesting Sunday, this is the story that was printed. Yesterday, two opposition groups both sent ministers to the pulpit. Both spoke simultaneously, each trying to shout above the other. Both called for hymns, and the congregation sang too, each side trying to drown out the other. Then the groups began shouting at each other. Bibles were raised in anger. I wonder what that means. Bibles were, like, throwing Bibles? Are they just shaking Bibles? Bibles were raised in anger. The Sunday morning service turned into a bedlam. Through it all, the two preachers continued to outshout each other with their sermons. Eventually, a deacon called a policeman. Two came in and began shouting for the congregation to be quiet. They advised the 40 persons in the church to return. The rivals filed out, still arguing. Last night, one of the group called a Let's Be Friends meeting, and it broke up in an argument. I read it in a source that I trust. I don't know that I believe that that's really true, but it sort of has the ring of truth if you've been around church very long or if you've been around certain churches very long. You know 
that even though we ought to be a place of unity, too often we're divided. And there's hurt feelings, and there's fighting, and there's sides, two opposition groups, or maybe more than two opposition groups. This wasn't reported in the Louisville paper, but when Brooke and I lived in Kentucky, one of my PhD supervisors was uh, serving as an interim pastor of a church. And I won't tell you the church name. is there in Louisville. It's an old church, an established church, and he's serving as the interim pastor. And it was very divided, and there was two sides, and they were not happy with each other. In this particular church, I can't imagine this, but they had weekly business meetings on Wednesday night. Every Wednesday night, they had a business meeting. And they ate together on Wednesday nights. They would eat together and then have a business meeting. And uh, he said these business meetings were so tense when he showed up. They're just so tense. He didn't exactly know how to deal with it. And uh, the, the tense business meetings turned into shouting matches. And the shouting matches eventually turned into people grabbing other people by the shirt collar getting physical with each other. And he said, it was so bad as we're trying to work through some of these issues. And he said, the, the tragic part is, at our church, this particular church he was at, he said, we did a lot of programming on Wednesday nights. We had a lot of guests come on Wednesday nights. Like, it was regular that we would have brand new people come to our church on Wednesday nights. And he said, I was so terrified to let them go into that business meeting and for that to be the first exposure to the church. So he said, I started a new ministry said, I picked one of my trusted deacons, and he was our tour guide. And if you were a guest on a Wednesday night, this deacon was going to take you on a tour of the building, far away from the business meeting. Let me show you the children's area. Let me show you the youth area. Let me show you the restrooms. Let me show you all the parts of the building. He said, I don't want you to bring these people back till the business meeting is over, because they're going to fight and argue, and I don't want people to see that, so you walk them around the building bring them back. And you laugh at that and you chuckle at that. But you think about what that would be like to be in that church family and to fight and to argue and to have these meetings and this division in the church. It's not a church that's accomplishing anything for the kingdom. And it's not a church that has found their unity in Christ. And just on top of that, can we just say it's not a joyful church. It's a miserable church. And Paul says to his friends in Philippi, it's a church that's not being ripped apart by division, but it's a church just like ours. It's filled with sinful people, and Paul knows their hearts, and he knows the the personality conflicts and who rubs who wrong, and he's writing to these people, and he's saying, listen, complete my joy. He's not asking, he's commanding. Complete my joy by finding your unity in Christ. That's the big idea that we're talking about this morning. So I just want you to see three thoughts about unity. Here we go. The foundation of our unity is the salvation that we share in Christ. Verse 1. If there's any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy. And as believers, we read that verse and we say, yes, there's all of those things. If there is these things, of course there's these things. And I've given you just a few verses on your outline. Take these, uh, these ideas phrase by phrase. Is there any encouragement in Christ? Well, 1 John 1 says that if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. That ought to be encouraging. There's encouragement in Christ for the believer. If there's any comfort from love. 
any comfort from love. 1 John 4.10 says, This is love, not that we loved God, but that he loved us, and he sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. Your relationship with God is not based on how strong your love for him is. It's based on how strong his love is for you. How strong is it? It's strong enough that he sent his son to take the wrath of God that was reserved for you, and he died for it on the cross. There is comfort in love. Verse 1 says, is, is there any participation in the Spirit? And if you're a believer, the answer is yes. John chapter 3, Jesus said, the Spirit, the wind, blows where it wishes. It's the one that gives new life to somebody. You don't conjure that up on your own. The Spirit of God gives that to you. And Paul tells the church in Ephesus, the Spirit of God is a deposit. God has given to you, the Spirit living in you. It's a guarantee that you have an inheritance waiting for you someday in heaven. So is there participation in the Spirit? If you're a believer, there is. He says, is there any affection and sympathy? What do you read in the book of Hebrews? You read that we have a great high priest who was made like us in every way, who was tempted in every way, just as we are, and he can sympathize with our weaknesses. Paul's just ticking off this list of things and he's saying, is there any encouragement in Christ? For the Christian, there is. Is there any comfort from God's love for us? Absolutely. Is there participation in God's spirit? There is. Is there affection and sympathy in in our experience of salvation? There's all of these things. And our unity is not based on a, a ball team or a political party or a club that we're all a part of, but it's based on our shared experience of salvation in Jesus Christ. And the key idea here, idea here, you almost miss it. It's this idea that we are in Christ. And he says it right there in verse 1. Is there any encouragement in Christ? This is what theologians call the doctrine of union with Christ. And it's the foundation of what we're talking for. It's the foundation of Christian unity. This idea that we are united to Christ by faith. That when you turn from your sin and you trust in Jesus, you are joined to him. Not unlike a man and a woman coming together in a a wedding ceremony and the two become one. They're joined together. That's the idea. When you repent and you put your faith in Jesus, you're joined to him by your faith. You're united to Christ. This week it made me think about Matthew 18. Matthew 18, we won't look at it. It's the parable of the unforgiving servant. Do you remember that story Jesus told? He says there was this guy, he owed this monstrous debt to somebody, and the man just sort of forgave it because he knew he wasn't going to be able to pay him back. So this man has just been forgiven of a massive debt, and he walks out of the presence where he's just got his, his debt cleared, and he goes and he finds his buddy on the street, and he says, hey, you owe me five bucks. I need it right now. And the buddy says, well, I don't have five bucks. I'll get it to you soon. And he says, if you don't have it, I'm throwing you in the debtor's prison. And you read it and you say, well, that's a preposterous story. That's the point. It's preposterous. Jesus is trying to get your attention. And the point that he's trying to make in that story is, if you have been forgiven, you should be forgiving. Your experience of God's grace ought to change you into a different kind of person. And I think that's what Paul's driving at here in verse 1. If you've experienced encouragement in Christ and comfort and love and participation in the Spirit and affection and sympathy, that ought to change who you are. And if you haven't changed at all, you may have prayed a prayer, 
You may have been baptized, but you may have never experienced salvation in Christ. These things ought to change who you are in your core, in your heart. And they ought to make you the kind of person who seeks unity in the body of Christ. So number one, the foundation of our unity is the salvation we share in Christ. Number two, there's a connection between experiencing joy and living in unity. Joy and unity go together. You can look up Psalm 133 later. It says how good and pleasant it is when brothers dwell together in unity. That's just a simple verse that tells you something you already know. When your family is all on the same page, that's a good thing. And when you're not, it's not. In the office you work in, when there's unity among the people that you work with, that's a good, pleasant thing. And when there's not, it's miserable. In a church, when there's unity among God's people, and we're seeing things on the same level, and we're all in agreement, and we're moving in the same direction, that's a great, joyful thing. And when a church isn't in that spot, it's not joyful. It's miserable. Look what Paul says, verse 2. Complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord, and being of one mind. That's hard. Can we just admit that? That's hard in your family, and that's hard where you work, and that's hard in a church filled with people who are different, have different experiences, different backgrounds, see things differently, process things differently. It is hard to have that kind of unity. There's an old Jewish joke that says if you get two rabbis together, you'll have three opinions. And the Baptist version of that joke is if you have five Baptists at a business meeting, you're going to have seven different votes cast. It's because it's hard to get together on the same page and to see eye to eye and to agree, but that's what Paul is calling them towards. And it's only possible in the gospel. It's not possible to have that kind of unity around a sports team. Look, you can have a kind of unity around a sports team, but not the kind of unity that Paul's talking about. You can have a kind of unity around a political party, but that's a fragile thing. It's not the kind of unity that Paul's talking about. You can have a a kind of unity with a group of people saying we enjoy the same things or we have the same hobbies or we run in the same circles, but it's not the kind of unity that Paul's talking about here. What Paul's saying is your unity has to be grounded in the gospel. Can I just tell you something that's kind of tragic for churches? A lot of churches? There's a lot of quote-unquote churches who will never be able to experience this kind of unity because they don't know the gospel. They know self-improvement. They know entertainment. They know tradition. Churches know lots of different things. But unless you know the gospel, you're not going to have unity. And the gospel is not complicated. We talk about it all the time. It starts with God in who he is in his character. And the idea that he is holy and set apart and unique. And the gospel moves to us and says... You're none of those things. You're a sinner. You've fallen short. And the consequence of your sin is death. That's all that God owes you. Instant and eternal death. The good news is, gospel means good news, the good news is Philippians 2, 5 to 11. 
the one who in the beginning was in the form of God, humbled himself and took the form of a servant. And he lived among us. And he humbled himself to the point of death, even death on a cross, not for his own sins, but for ours. He was raised from the dead three days later, and God has highly exalted him, or as Paul says, super exalted him to the highest place in the universe. And you can have life and forgiveness and joy and meaning and purpose and all of it if you will repent of your sin and believe the truth about Jesus. That's the gospel. And if you're not on board with that, you can never be part of unity in this church. That's the only solid ground underneath our feet where we can stand shoulder to shoulder, side to side, and do what Paul's talking about where he says, you have the same mind, the same love, being a full accord, and a one mind. Look, he's not saying you have to like all the same restaurants. We, we go eat, our staff, every, every week we go eat together. And we know there's a few places we can't go because you don't like this place, and I don't like this place, and you don't like this place. We're not united in that. There's division. That's not what Paul's talking about on silly stuff. You're not talking about sports teams. You're not talking about political parties. You're not talking about any of that stuff. What he's talking about is the gospel of Jesus Christ. Are you in agreement about who God is and who we are as sinners and what Jesus has done for us and what he demands of our life? That's the ground of our unity. And he's saying, when you get on the same page about that stuff, you complete my joy. You're going to experience true joy as a church family when you find that kind of unity. Number three, Christ-like humility is essential for unity, and it's essential for joy. None of these things happen. None of these things are possible apart from genuine Christ-like humility. Paul describes it in verse three and four. Do nothing from rivalry or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. I think there's a lot of confusion about humility. And I'll just be real honest with you. I'm not really sure in the Bible Belt that Christians have a reputation for being humble people. Paul's saying that that ought to mark you. That's how you ought to be known, as humble people. There's a pastor who lived a lot of hundred years ago, and his name was John Chrysostom. He was a pastor in Alexandria, and he said this, there is nothing so foreign to a Christian as arrogance. If you're a Christian, the polar opposite from who you are ought to be the arrogant person. There is nothing so foreign to you as arrogance. I like the way C.S. Lewis said it. C.S. Lewis put it like this. This is my favorite definition of humility. He writes it in, in Mere Christianity. The chapter is actually about pride. He calls pride the great sin. This is what he says about humility. Do not imagine if you meet a really humble man, he will be what most people call, quote, unquote, humble nowadays. He will not be a sort of greasy, smarmy person who's always telling you that, of course, he's a nobody. Probably all you'll think about him is that he seemed a cheerful, intelligent chap who took a real interest in what you said to him. If you dislike him, it'll be because you feel a little bit envious of anyone who seems to enjoy. There's a, that idea of joy, to enjoy life so easily. He will not be thinking about humility. He won't be thinking about himself at all. 
We kind of have this idea that humility means I just need to think about how worthless I am. C.S. Lewis would say, that's pride. Because all you're thinking about is you. The humble person isn't thinking about himself at all. And Paul says, if you're going to have unity, you've got to have this kind of Christ-like humility. Just look at these phrases and just think about them with me. We're almost done. He says, do nothing from rivalry or conceit. And he's talking to a church. In your church, do nothing from rivalry or conceit. And some of you say, well, who in the world would act that way at church? Why would I ever act that way? Conceited or having rivalry. Do you get upset when people don't support your area of ministry? Something that you're passionate about? That you want others to be passionate about? And maybe you try to play like the Holy Spirit in calling them to participate in that ministry and they say, no, I don't, I don't want to do that. Do you take that personal? Do you get your feelings hurt when you're not recognized for your contribution? I know that most of you would say, oh, I don't want to be brought up on stage and given a medal or anything. But I'm not talking about did we fail to give you a medal. I'm, I'm saying did, did we fail to say thank you? Does that upset you? Do you take that personal? Do you take that as a slight? Do you get upset when people try to change your ministry, get rid of it, alter it, tweak it, update it, improve it? Is that a, a personal offense to you? What about if you're not asked to help in a certain way? Do you look at those who are asked and say, well, why would they ask them and not me? I'm way more qualified than that person. They didn't even come to me and ask me. All of those questions might be an indication that in your heart you might have an issue with what Paul's talking about where he says do nothing from rivalry or conceit. A lot of translations use the word vainglory. A lot of those questions might reveal that it's more about you than you'd like to think it is. What about the phrase where he says count others more significant than yourself? You read that, you're in church Sunday morning, You're the good Jesus-loving folk, and you immediately think, well, of course I do that. I always think of others first. My mama taught me to do that. Think of others first, not yourself. Of course I do that. I'll tell you that church is a lot like a symphony orchestra. I don't know a whole lot about a symphony orchestra, but I read a guy this week that said, the hardest instrument to play in a symphony orchestra, second chair. Everybody wants to play first chair. Everybody wants the recognition, the credit, the lead, the glory, the attention. What's hard is to find somebody to play second and to do it with enthusiasm. Not grumbling, not complaining. He says, count others more significant than yourselves. Can you give people your time without looking at your phone? Or do you account you and your phone as more significant than them? Do you allow others to take the spotlight and get the credit? Even when maybe you feel like you contributed and you deserve some of that, can you let somebody else take the credit for maybe something that you contributed to? More significant than yourselves. Do you listen to other people to really listen to what they're saying to you 
Or do you listen to other people so that when they stop talking, you can jump in and say something that's really on your mind? Paul says, count others more significant than yourselves. Lastly, he says, do do not look only at your own interests, but also at the interests of others. You You could ask a lot of questions here. Do you ever act interested in something that you're really not interested in because you know someone in your Sunday school class or your church family is interested in it? Ask about it, talk about it, listen to it, put up with all of their rambling about it. Not because you care a lick about what they're saying about, but because you care about them. There's a talk show radio host, and every now and then he lets people call in into his show, and he says, I'll let you talk about whatever you want. And if I'm not interested, I'll fake it. And he does it for ratings. Christians don't do it for ratings. Christians do it for unity. Do you take an interest in something that is of no interest to you because you know someone you care about is interested in it? Do nothing from rivalry or conceit. Count others more significant than yourselves. Do not look to your own interests, but to the interests of others. We'll sum it up with this. Humility is not false modesty but it's an accurate understanding of the gospel. That's what Paul's calling us to. It's not some sort of fake modesty where you just sort of, the person Lewis describes as smarmy and greasy and telling everybody how insignificant you are and you're a nobody. That's not what we're talking about. But do you have an accurate understanding of the gospel? Of who God is and of who you are and of what Christ has actually done for you and what he's calling you to. When we get on the same page about that, we find unity. You know, I like Lewis's definition. He kind of, my paraphrase says, if you meet a humble person, they're not going to tell you how humble they are. You're going to leave and you're just going to sort of say, "Ah, they were interested in me. They cared about me. They were easy and pleasant to be around. I think you can take that same definition about humility for an individual, and I think you can throw it on a church. I think as a church, our job is not to go out and to tell the world how humble we are. I think you kind of missed the point. I think the point is, as a church family, to be in agreement about the gospel, to know God in his holiness, to confess our sin without excuse, to trust in the finished work of Jesus, to turn from sin, and to follow Jesus, trusting him wherever he leads us. That's unity. And that's what Paul's calling us to. So let me pray. Father, we are grateful for your word. We believe that it's true. Father, we know that humility and pride are issues for all of us. And that takes different forms for all of us. But it is an issue for everyone in this room. Father, and we want to find unity as a church family, not in politics, not in a hobby, not in a certain demographic or a slice of society, not in tradition, not in entertainment, but we want to find unity in the gospel of Jesus. And so we pray this morning that you would press in on our hearts and our minds the reality of who you are and the reality of our sin and the beauty of what Christ has done for us. Father, and that we would feel this morning the urgency of turning from sin to follow Jesus and to trust in Jesus. Father, I pray that every person in this room would do that, 
Maybe they've done it before and would renew that commitment this morning. Father, maybe for the very first time somebody would do that. They would confess their sin to you and they would trust in what Jesus has done for salvation, for hope, for life, for meaning, for purpose, and for unity and for joy. Father, be honored as we sing together and as we respond to your word. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.